when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing Philip Green's use of NDAs and whether parliamentary privilege was abused by Lord Hayne. Plus, we'll also look at the state of Theresa May's leadership, the budget next week, and whether anything is happening on Brexit. I'm delighted to be joined by our city editor, Jonathan Ford, deputy opinion editor, Miranda Green, political editor, George Parker, and white editor, James Blitz. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. This week's main political news was dominated by non-disclosure agreements. On Wednesday, the Daily Telegraph splashed that a prominent businessman had spent half a million pounds on an injunction to stop the paper reporting allegations of sexual harassment and bullying. The rumours of who this was were exploded on Thursday when Peter Hayne used parliamentary privilege in the House of Lords to reveal that it was Sir Philip Green, the retail top shop mogul. Did he do the right thing and do non-disclosure agreements need reforming? So Miranda Green, let's begin with the specifics of this case. The Daily Telegraph have been conducting an eight-month investigation into Sir Philip Green and had spoken to lots of people who had put forward allegations about his behaviour. Sir Philip Green denies all these allegations, we should state. And they were wanting to publish this and at some point Sir Philip had activated his legal team, spent £500,000 on high-powered lawyers and got an injunction. The injunction was not about the details of the story but it was about the non-disclosure agreement signed between these people putting forward allegations and the retail mogul himself. So what happened next? So having had an extraordinary front page of the Telegraph this week with a blacked out shape saying we've been prevented from naming the senior businessman who's been accused of these inappropriate workplace behaviours, you then had what became a bit of a sort of game of parliamentary dare as to who was going to use parliamentary privilege which is where MPs and peers are allowed without redress to um, say things in Parliament without being sued, for example. And there were rumours even on Wednesday around PMQs that an MP was going to name the individual concerned. That didn't happen. But then yesterday... Uh, in a moment of kind of high drama in the House of Lords, Peter Hayne, the former Labour minister, decided to name Sir Philip Green as the individual that the Telegraph had been trying to go after and the individual who had spent all this money on what was popularly seen as a gagging clause to gag the press and also to gag the complainants against him. It's way more complicated than that, however, because two out of the five complainants actually supported the injunction and there's been a major backlash since Peter Hayne took this action against his decision decision to do so because parliamentary privilege where you effectively say our legal system has got this wrong and so I as a parliamentarian have decided to speak out about it and overrule the courts is very 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 rarely used and should only be used in extremists and there's been a serious amount of criticism even from other former home secretaries 
against Peter Hain from his own side. And there is a historical precedent for this, which was during the whole superinjunction era, John Hemming, who was then a Liberal Democrat MP, used parliamentary privilege in the House of Commons to name Ryan Giggs a footballer for having a superinjunction again about details of his private life. And when it happened then and when it happened with Lord Hain this week, the respective speakers of those houses were very unhappy about it because parliamentary privilege should only be used in those extreme circumstances. And it will be interesting to see whether this injunction is still held up because they were now in this odd situation where everyone is reporting about Philip Green, but the details of the allegations still cannot be published because the injunction is still standing and the Telegraph's called on Sir Philip to drop the injunction, but there's still no sign of that at the moment. Well, that's also what's weird about Peter Haynes' decision to use parliamentary privilege to name Sir Philip Green, which is that the actually the legal process had not yet been exhausted. I think that's a really crucial point to remember. So yes, indeed, the Telegraph is still sort of stuck in a slight publishing limbo about the details of the story. And meanwhile, we're sort of all plunged into this quite interesting debate about the role of NDAs in commercial life, whether they're actually being abused not to protect commercial secrets, but to protect wrongdoing by people with power and money. Um, But also another layer of debate now about whether parliamentarians are actually abusing this constitutional power that they have to intervene when they feel that the judicial system has got things wrong. I would go further. I mean, it's not just that the case was still in process. And it was interesting listening to Peter Hain that he referred to an injunction, whereas in fact, there was only an interim injunction that had been granted. I actually think this was a very poor decision on his part in that um, they're quite important you know, principles and legal points that in connection with this, which would have been very useful to have discussed, and that process may well continue. But I think um, this process, this whole legal process, has now been thrown into something of a layer of confusion um, by the, the premature naming of Philip Green. The fundamental point here, though, is that, as you said earlier, Miranda, some of the people involved in this case, some of the complainants, actually supported the injunction. And essentially, they didn't want to be named. They didn't want to reopen this whole case. They didn't want to pursue legal remedies against Philip Green or Topshop. And And they didn't want to be in the newspapers And they didn't want to be in the newspapers (laughs) themselves. And essentially, you have to ask yourself, you know, and, and this is, I think, what the case would have got at. Under what circumstances is it appropriate to set aside a contractual arrangement between two people that affects only them, doesn't affect anybody else, if they wish to keep that secret, is is that something the court should say, we shouldn't allow that? And I'm a little bit puzzled about where this whole case is going in any event, because it seems to me we are, it's absolutely true that people should not be put under duress to sign agreements and, and, and so forth. And, and there are obvious lessons to learn about the way that companies behave from the Me Too episode. However, It seems to me that it cannot be, people cannot be obliged effectively to take legal action to prosecute other people. I mean, if I choose as an individual, someone has wronged me, to settle that by forgiving them in return for agreeing to keep silence, it seems to me that is 
something I'm entitled to do. I'm not obliged to go down to the police station and report them. I think that's an extremely good point, actually, because if you're concerned about the welfare of victims of workplace bullying and harassment, forcing them to go through a lengthy legal process that could take years, as we all know, powerful organisations with money and time and resources will always win because it becomes a battle of attrition. So actually, if an individual wishes to, frankly, sign a gagging order, take the money and move on with their lives, that is something that they should be able to do. There's clearly the wider climate here, though, that's affected the reporting of this case and affected Peter Haynes' decision to use parliamentary privilege, which is there's a kind of feeling abroad on two things. One, that the Me Too movement has kind of made this an unstoppable wave with a bias in favour of transparency and disclosure. And that may not be appropriate in every case, as you've quite rightly pointed out, Jonathan, but that's the kind of momentum behind it now. The other thing is just that this phenomenon of politics becoming a bit sort of overawed with business people and clutching them to their bosom. You know, Mm. Philip Green was given a knighthood. He became involved in the government's education policy by opening a vocational skills college for the retail industry. I've interviewed him myself for, for the FT because of his involvement in public policy in that area. You know, there's also a feeling that politics has got involved with people who aren't squeaky clean. And then the politicians want to dissociate themselves, which is why you've now got this other parallel campaign trying to strip Philip Green of his knighthood. Jonathan, could I just ask you about this general role of NDAs per se? Because there's a lot, been a lot of cause for something to be done about this. And Theresa May has said she's going to look at some potential reforms. But I don't think it would be a good idea to ban NDAs full stop because they do have valid purposes and uses. But there is this sense that they, are, they might be being abused somehow. Look, I think it is a problem. I mean, I've looked at various cases and there are some cases which have involved whistleblowers where you can see a very strong case for disclosure of what the substance of this agreement was. And that's because sometimes they almost flip over into things like perversion of the course of justice, where they involve third parties, where, you know, I discover you've committed a crime and you say to me, don't say anything about it. I'll give you a million pounds to shut up. And I think about it. And the alternatives for me are bleak, as they often are in these situations with employees and employers. So I take the money. But I'm put in a very false position, which is I've essentially agreed not to pass on knowledge that I have, which is potentially of interest to the authorities in prosecuting something. That seems to me that's a very abusive situation. And clearly where you discover that that is going on, there's a strong public interest in exposing it and cracking down on people who use them for those purposes. In these cases, you know, I sort of think it's almost a bit of a self-regulating mechanism, because if you actually look at the origin of the Me Too stuff, what actually happened was these things became useless because people didn't honour them. Now, there's a danger, of course, of bandwagons, but there is little point in Philip Green running around giving half a million pounds to lawyers if it's not going to stop his name being mentioned in connection of the things he's spending all that money on. So to some extent, I think the solution possibly lies in you know, a recognition by those who are issuing these NDAs that there are certain things which they are unlikely to be able to keep secret because the public climate is so opposed to these things being covered up in the first place. And that, of course, strengthens the hand of the employee in terms of negotiating and whether they, what they agree to keep secret and, and how they agree to do it. Well, I think we probably will agree that anything that tips the balance of power slightly more towards the employees 
um, and potential victims of abuse would be a good thing. Mm. I think also it's interesting to note, Seb, you were mentioning the rash of super injunctions a few years ago and John Hemming, the MP for Birmingham Yardley, who who, who named someone in uh, in Parliament to expose the overuse of these super injunctions. And what happened in the end was a kind of working group of lawyers and people from the judiciary and the media actually worked out what to do because it became unsustainable because, as Jonathan's saying, with these NDAs, money was being spent to try and silence everyone. It became unworkable. There was a rash of them. It clearly wasn't in the public interest and so it was worked through in the end. Just to come back to your point earlier, Miranda, about Sir Philip Green and his role in this because... Um, you know, he was also an advisor to the Cameron government on business efficiency as well. And I think he sort of tacitly endorsed the Conservatives at the 2010 election, saying that they're going to get on and do whatever it needs to be done there. Um, but he's still got this knighthood, which has become a sort of particular ire for many people and campaigners out there. And there's very weird, complicated things that they may go through to strip him of that. But, you know, there is still this sense that he's still the head of a big retail empire. He's still going to keep doing what he's going to do, even if he does become something of a public pariah. It's a very peculiar case, but I think it's the most interesting one where the kind of ethos of parts of the business world bump up against public life uh, and the contrast in what's expected of you in terms of behaviour becomes most sort of transparent. I mean, if you look again at the footage of Philip Green before the select committee and his complete inability to understand (laughs) that they had the power and he was expected to answer the questions you'll see you know quite how much friction there is in that in that relationship i think for many he's become also because of the scandals around bhs and the way that the pension fund there was raided you know he has become a particular kind of pariah which is why the momentum is behind this campaign to strip him of his knighthood the last time we had this discussion, I think, not you and I, Miranda, but in general, was around uh, Fred Goodwin when he was stripped of his knighthood in 2012. And there was a very neat kind of get-out clause there for officialdom in that he got his knighthood for services to banking and having brought down RBS, it was fairly easy to see that the grounds had not been uh, <laughs> fulfilled and therefore it was taken away. In this case, I mean, it's, as you say, it's a more complicated and difficult case. I mean, personally, I sort of feel instinctively that in this case, you need to know a little bit more about the facts. And before, you you know, it's very easy to to sort of dash into the street with the pitchforks and call for people to be defenestrated. But in this particular situation, we don't really know all the facts yet. So in my view, calling for, you know, people to be made examples of and before we actually really know what they've done is probably a step too far even for us. And do you think finally, just Jonathan, on Sir Philip Green, his reputation as one of Britain's leading businessmen? Because when this was, when this story first came out, there was something, you know, there's not too many leading big British businessmen who, you know, could have potentially been in this category here. Is this going to affect his position at all, do you think, in terms of the retail group that he runs or not at all? Well, he owns it, so he'd have to sack himself. So, um, as I suspect, <laughs> suspect he, he that won't be top of his list of things to do uh, on Monday. You know, I don't think this will have that much effect on his job prospects at uh, Topshop. I think he's obviously got a lot of difficulties along with other people in the high street at the moment. 
Um, and a bit like, you know, Harvey Weinstein, although of course there are no direct parallels one can draw at this stage, he is somebody whose reputation is uh, being challenged at a time when his business fortunes are waning somewhat, which is maybe for him a rather difficult thing to confront. Theresa May has survived another week. That might not seem unusual, but the talk of a leadership challenge against the Prime Minister has been ramping up. Rumours were abound in Westminster this week that the magical 48 letters had been reached, but Tory MPs would trigger a leadership contest. But, once again, it did not emerge, and Mrs May survived a difficult meeting with her parliamentary party on Wednesday. And yes, Brexit is still in stalemate, a difficult budget lies ahead, and once again, the questions are raised about how much longer Theresa May will survive. George Parker obviously stuck in Groundhog Day on this, that it's over and over again. The rebels saying Theresa May has to go. The hashtag stand up for Brexit crowd are saying they've put their letters in. We need to have someone who believes in Brexit to do this. But it's very much looking like it's all shirt and no trousers for the Brexiters in this sense because they keep talking about this and saying there's going to be a contest, but it's just not emerging. No, and um, the last couple of Sundays we've woken up to headlines in the Sunday Times, one saying it was going to be uh, the uh, hell week and the following week it was going to be the killing zone for Theresa May. And of course, as you say, these leadership challenges never actually materialise into anything at all. Um, that's not to say that the yeah, the rebels, if you want to call them that, are close to the 48 names needed to trigger a no-confidence vote in Theresa May. They probably are. Let's say there are 30 or 40 or even more names. But I still think the Conservative Party would have to take a very deep breath before it were to push Theresa May over the edge in that way, especially in the middle of Brexit negotiations. When, as we've discussed on many occasions before, Seb, removing the Prime Minister now or even at any point between now and Brexit Day next March probably won't help the Eurosceptics at all. No, because the challenge is if they get these 48 and some reports say it's about 40, some say 44 and the issue with this whole system which is a bit crackers when you think about it because nobody knows how many letters are in there apart from Sir Graham Brady who's the grandee who runs the 1922 committee. So you could accidentally have a leadership contest and there's been reports around Westminster of Graham Brady telling MPs to think very carefully before they put a letter in which is his way of saying we are very close to the 48 so don't accidentally trigger this but nobody really knows about how many they're in there we won't really know until Sir Graham Brady walks up to Downing Street and says Prime Minister I have to let you know that we're going to have a leadership confidence vote uh, tomorrow Yeah exactly uh, Graham Brady is the the famous man in the grey suit and um, pinstripe grey suit pinstripe grey suit in Graham's case and you're right we don't know how many letters are in the safe and I think uh, Graham, though he's rather opaque about exactly how this works, I think in the event that the 48th letter went in, I think he would say to the person putting in the 48th letter, are you sure you want to do this? This would trigger a leadership contest. The other thing I think that Graham Brady would do is he'd go back to people who'd previously submitted letters and put them into a safe to ask if they were still sure that that was their intention, whether they'd like to remove the letter. Because I think Graham Brady realises that the vast majority of the Conservative Party do not want the turmoil of a leadership contest at this stage. So I think even were the Magic 48 to be triggered, I still think Graham Brady would have a little bit of wiggle room to make sure that people really wanted to do it. So James Blitz, the issue with this, as George was just saying, that obviously the Brexiters are not happy in the direction that the negotiations are going. The landing path for this deal is emerging and it's going to be softer than they want in some form. It's going to have some long transition period. 
tight customs arrangements, all the things they don't like. But they still lack two things. One is a coherent alternative that will fly with the EU. And two is an alternative candidate because Brexit has been saying, well, we need to install David Davis as an interim PM who will take a tougher approach and get us that super Canada plus, 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 plus deal. The issue with that is it won't be a coronation, that there will be a full-blown leadership contest. And in that case, the clock still ticks down and Brussels will just look at this and think Britain is once again fighting with itself and conservative party politics are going above the national interest well that is a broad statement of where we are um i mean i think you know you've seen an enormous amount of really unpleasant vituperative language against mrs may especially last weekend and i think one of the reasons why you're seeing that language is actually these people are really frustrated it's a sign of frustration rather than determination shall we put it they're frustrated because they actually know there is very little they can do i mean the fact is we're we're pretty much at the end of the whole process. I mean, a, a deal has to be struck really within the next four or five weeks if we're going to have a resolution of everything in December. So there's very little they can do. We're still stuck over the, th- the, th- the three areas where it's unclear whether Mrs. May can really sell a deal to the House of Commons. Namely, one, she wants, seems to want to have some kind of extension of the transition so that there's more time to do a deal. Hard Brexiters don't like that, means staying in the EU for longer, close to the 2022 election, etc. Secondly, she wants to have this all-UK customs arrangement, which means that there's a softer border, Northern Ireland and Dover-Calais for a longer period. But of course, um, they think that that means staying in the customs union forever, and they want some kind of time limit. She doesn't look like she's... It's clear whether she's going to do that or not. And third, and most important, the Europeans are absolutely insisting on the Northern Ireland-only backstop arrangement. And that is something which she says that that's in many ways still the biggest problem. She says she doesn't want to do that. And the Europeans are insisting on it. And so it's all looking very stuck, very difficult. It, I still think in the end she'll come back with a deal of some sort. The question is whether she'll get the votes. And do you think there's any chance this could spill over into next year? Because we know from consistent EU negotiations these things always go to the wire and people said that there has to be an o- a deal in October and there wasn't. And never everyone's saying there has to be a deal in December. Is there a chance this could flow into 2019 or do we genuinely run out of time for getting it through parliaments by that point? I think the idea of a November summit it's still very unclear. I think just in the last couple of days, there's been a lot more talk about December, actually, as the December Council being the moment of decision. I think Michael Gove was talking about that at a select committee hearing a couple of days ago. I've heard myself that December is now actually where it's going to be. That alone, even if it is just the December Council, leaves an incredibly tight timetable for getting a vote through the House of Commons. The House of Commons is, is supposed to go into the Christmas recess just a week after the December Council. A week is not long enough to have that vote. You'd need longer than that for Parliament to have, for example, the assessment by the Treasury of what the consequences of the deal are. That takes you into January. If you then went into January, you've got an extraordinarily small amount of time, even if you signed a deal, to get all the legislation and statutory instruments through for departure. So... It's all looking horrendous. In the end, December has to be, I think, the final date. That's looking more and more likely. I don't think we're going to get very much movement in Brussels between now and the end of next week because we've got the budget, of course, on Monday and then we've got key budget votes at the end of next week. And I don't think anything that Theresa May wants to rock the boat with the Eurosceptics um, between uh, now and the budget votes going through because we know that a lot of Eurosceptics regard Philip Hammond as 
the embodiment of Project Fear and will do anything they can to make life difficult for him. So I think things will be stalled until the end of the first week of November. The people in Brussels are finding it very hard to find a convenient date in November when all the 28 leaders can come together. It's quite difficult actually to schedule emergency summits at short notice. And I tend to agree with James that December is looking more likely. And from Theresa May's point of view, the closer she can push the vote back towards the cliff edge of leaving without a deal the better it is for her because the more it focuses minds on the choice which essentially will come down to vote for my deal or else there's going to be chaos. Another thing we saw this week, James, was a very significant change within Whitehall. This is your area of expertise here. That's Sir Jeremy Hayward, who's been the Cabinet Secretary for quite a long time, has served Gordon Brown, David Cameron, Theresa May. He um, stepped down due to ill health, that he's been on leave since the summer, and Sir Jeremy has been a very key part of, of British constitutional life for almost 30 years, I think, now, but particularly as Cabinet Secretary. He formed the coalition government, he oversaw the response to the financial crisis, and he's done a lot of work on Brexit here. He's been replaced by Sir Mark Sedwell, who's been the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor. How does that change things at all? Because the two key Whitehall Mandarins here, one is the Cabinet Secretary and the other is Ollie Robbins, who, as we've talked about before, has become this bête noire for Brexiters as this guy who has a Brexit plan and is selling out Britain or what have you. What's the power relationship between those two and how important are they going to be as we enter this final stage of getting a deal? I mean, Mark Sedwell is certainly an important figure, and he is already, I think, even in the period where he's been the acting cabinet secretary, because Jeremy Hayward said back in June that he would be temporarily standing down. He's already been making his mark in a number of areas across Whitehall. There's been, I think should say right at the outset, an enormous wave of emotion and and sympathy for Jeremy Hayward um, when he announced that he was standing down. I mean, he really is... A, a huge, a colossal figure in the history of the post-war civil service, uh, very much admired both inside Whitehall and at Westminster, although he has, of course, been severely criticised by hard Brexiters, which has really clouded the final phase of his time in that job. As far as the, the going th- things going forward are concerned, I mean, Mark Sedwill is a securocrat to the core. He's somebody whose whole background has been in the Foreign Office and Defence. So he's a very, very unusual person in the British Constitution to be Cabinet Secretary. So it's going to take time for him, I think, to make his impact on the sort of trade and economic areas which we're in, which, which we're engaged in. Now that doesn't matter. Now we're in the final stages of the Article Fifty process. But if we do leave with a deal, we'll enter a whole new area of trade negotiation, and it'll be very interesting to see what kind of impact he has as somebody who's really not been familiar with these areas. Ollie Robbins is still in this final phase, very much the key man constantly mentioned in political debate and discussion. Um, It's very unfortunate the way in which he has been criticised so much by hard Brexiters. In the end, he is, and I think George probably agree with this, he's doing the Prime Minister's bidding. I mean, in the Mm. end, that is what a civil servant does. It is Mrs May who's calling the shots, but he's the key man in this final phase of the negotiation. And I think what has shown the state we're in at the moment is the fact that uh, Sir Mark was put into that job so quickly because normally Cabinet Secretary is a hugely powerful position and would go through a long recruitment process and what have you, whereas Sir Mark was confirmed very quickly, partly because he he has the backing of Theresa May and has known her for many years, but also because at this crucial time because if we get a Brexit deal we will be leaving the EU um, smoothly on next March and that's going to still have a huge impact. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think just on that particular point, I mean, there is a very wide-ranging discussion in Whitehall about whether there should have been an open competition for that particular job. In the end, I think most people accept, however, at this stage, with Brexit being what it is, dominating everything, Mrs May had to choose another cabinet secretary, and she's not going to start looking around for somebody she doesn't really know. She knows Mark Sedwell, and that made him the prime person for that job. And finally, George, it's what you mentioned earlier, the budget, which is coming on Monday at a very unusual time of 3.30pm, because normally budgets tend to be on Wednesdays after PMQs, but everything about this budget's a little odd. Essentially, Philip Hammond is doing this because he wants to get it out the way so it doesn't cloud what's going on with Brexit. We've got a couple of themes, as you always get, emerging before it arrives. One is that tax revenues are looking better than expected, with a £13 billion windfall, which will be sprinkled lightly across Whitehall, a lot going to the Department of health to pay for that extra investment at the NHS but police wants more money defence wants more money, everyone wants more money and the second thing that we've heard so far is that Philip Hamlin is going to do something about the British High Street which has become uh, a political hot potato I think in the past couple of months as department stores and retail chains have experienced challenges and Labour has a big investment programme for that, Philip Hammond is going to cut some taxes Yes, I think that's right. It's the budget he really doesn't want to be having, to be honest. I think he would rather this budget could be pushed back to the spring. But having made such a big thing about having a single budget in the autumn, he felt he had to do it. Um, as you say, it's happening on a Monday rather than a Wednesday. A bit of theory in Whitehall that he was worried about doing on Halloween and getting Hammond House of Horror headlines that day. So it's been forward, moved forward to Monday. Look, I think it's going to be a classic Hammond budget. I think it will be quite cautious. He'll say things are still very uncertain. He'll give a glimpse of a brighter outlook beyond Brexit by saying if we stick to Theresa May's checkers plan or something like that and have a soft Brexit, there will be some sort of deal dividend, a bit of an economic bounce, and there'll be loads more money available for public services you mentioned. I think some of the crunchy decisions on public spending will obviously happen next year when we have the full spending review. What will be interesting to watch on Monday is whether Philip Hammond sets out the envelope for total departmental spending over the next five years. It's not entirely clear he's going to do that. But if he does, that will be viewed through the prism of is this the end of austerity that Theresa May was promising. So I think it's going to be a bit of a wait and see budget largely. A few other sort of populist measures, I think, as, as always with any Chancellor, Philip Hammond probably finds it slightly less comfortable doing this sort of stuff than George Osborne used to. And you mentioned, Seb, the high street package, which obviously has become a huge um, issue for many towns and cities up and down the country, particularly smaller towns. And what I think Philip Hammond will do is he's going to announce one and a half billion pounds, of which the biggest headlines were attracted by the fact he's giving nine hundred million pounds as temporary business rate relief to the smallest uh businesses. So if you're a news agent in Birmingham, for example, you might get fifteen hundred pounds off your business rates bill. But I think people in the Treasury see that as very much as a sticking plus, not as a long term solution. So I think the more important part of the High Streets package is a package of planning reform. And this is something Philip Hammond talks about. He says that we can't hold back the tide of online retailers taking business away from high street shops. What we need are more concentrated town centres. Do away with what with what he calls the gap toothed high street where you end up with lots of boarded up shops, charity shops at payday loan shops and all the rest of it, have a smaller area with shops in it and then bring offices and particularly housing back into the town centre. So you bring vibrancy back into town centres through a different route rather than just through shopping. I guess the, and the final question is, what is likely to blow up over this? Because the end of austerity soundbite has caused quite a lot of friction between number 10 and number 11 Downing Street. It was very much Theresa May's thing to say that. And it's a nice little soundbite. But Philip Hammond is, is very dry fiscally and, well, you may say personally too. But he certainly will not be too happy about sort of splashing cash around. It's not his style and it's not his economics. And it's really going to come down, you said, that overall envelope. But what else might potentially blow up, do you think? Well, 
Well, I think the thing that is always likely to blow up, as it does with any budget, is when the Chancellor promises tax rises. And of course, that's one of the ways that we have been expecting Philip Hammond to deal with the 25 billion annual uplift in national health spending. And so there was some speculation there would be tax rises. And that really is the most dangerous area for Philip Hammond, given the fact that Brexiteers are out to get Philip Hammond. They will stop anything that looks like a sort of an attack on the Tory vote. So whether it's even tinkering around with the allowances for pension tax relief, for example, or slowing down progress towards the £50,000 threshold for 40p tax rate. All those things are potentially very dangerous for Philip Hammond. And in the past, he hasn't shown himself to be particularly politically astute in judging the mood of the party. And I think the last thing as well, of course, is universal credit that a lot of Conservative MPs are demanding that the £2 billion that was taken out in 2015 needs to go back in because they're very worried that when that rollout of the welfare reforms comes out next year, if it's not properly funded, that's going to be a lot of pain for families and that will obviously inflict an electoral price on the Conservatives. Indeed. Well, I think there'll they'll, um, be a bit more money for universal credit, but I think the Treasury will do what it always does with universal credit and bear in mind the Treasury didn't want universal credit to be rolled out at all, is to push it back and keep delaying the full rollout nationally to save money that way. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Jonathan, Miranda, George and James for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. In the meantime, if you like this podcast and would like to see some more FT journalism, then check out our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash 50. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Harry Robertson. Until next time, thanks for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.